Please take your Bibles with me this morning and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. 1 We're going to be talking about a very controversial topic today. The title of the sermon is Marriage and Divorce. And divorce is one of those topics in the church that uh, receives a great amount of attention and surrounding which there is a great amount of controversy today. Now, there are several reasons for this. Typically speaking, when we find areas of controversy in the scriptures, um, we can find various aspects of numerous reasons. One of those reasons is because there is some degree of ambiguity in the text, whether real ambiguity or perceived ambiguity, as people have sought to um, explain this particular issue. Another reason why there's so much controversy is because culturally speaking, this is a topic that um, people don't like the traditional interpretation from, the, from church history. And so because they don't like it and because it doesn't mess with, mesh with what's happening in culture today, uh, they are far more prone to adopt certain interpretations of the validity of divorce in Christian circles, as opposed to adopting other interpretations. And then, of course, there is also the problem in any time you deal with biblical interpretation about methods of interpretation, and the fact that various people choose different methods of interpreting the Word of God, and so they will come to various and different conclusions. So all of that comes to bear today as we talk about this problem, or this topic, or this this. Um, issue of marriage and divorce. And we will be, as I begin, let me just warn you, we will be speaking about the issue very specifically within the context of believers. And we'll talk about that a little bit more as we get going. Let's begin by reading our passage today in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 10 through 16. And then we'll uh, begin with a little bit of an introduction. And unto the married I command, yet not I, but the Lord, Let not the wife depart from her husband, but, and if she depart, let her remain unmarried, or if she, or be reconciled to her husband, and let not the husband put away his wife. But to the rest speak I, not the Lord. If any brother hath a wife, and believeth not, that believeth not, and she be pleased to dwell with him, let him not put her away. And the woman which hath an husband, that believeth not, and if she be pleased to dwell with, if he be pleased to dwell with her, Let her not leave him. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Else were your children unclean, but now are they holy. But if the unbelieving depart, let him depart. A brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases. But God hath called us unto peace. For what knowest thou, O wife, whether thou shalt save thy husband? Or how knowest thou, O man, whether thou shalt save thy wife? We step into this passage today, having last week explored Paul's presentation of the purpose for marriage, both its freedoms and its limitations. Now, recall the five points that we drew from the past couple of weeks of sermons. The first point was that every Christian is God's, both body and spirit, that God has a claim to us, right by creation and by purchase, both body and soul. Second, we discovered that as gods, we have no right to give our bodies to another in physical intimacy. That we are gods, and so we should not be giving ourselves to 
another. However, if one cannot resist the desire for physical intimacy, God in his grace has provided a means by which for man and woman to satisfy their need for physical intimacy without falling out of fellowship with God, and that is through the marriage union. We also discussed that marriage is not defined by physical intimacy, that when you enter into physical a physical union with a person, that does not define you as being married, as um, we might be tempted to think from various passages in Scripture, but rather we see the example that marriage is in fact uh, solidified through lifelong vows of faithfulness one to another. And then our fifth and final point was that, that if you are able to resist the desire for physical intimacy and the companionship that comes with marriage, there are certain advantages, spiritually speaking, to being unmarried. We'll discuss that in uh, the weeks to come. It'll be a few weeks here before we get to it, but we will indeed discuss it as Paul gets to it in the passage. And so we step into our text today, and notice what it says in verse 10. Paul says, and unto the married I command. As Paul continues in verse 10, he turns his attention specifically toward those that are already married. Now, he's been talking to various uh, groups, kind of jumping back and forth between those that are married, those that are not, those that are thinking about being married. We'll see. He's even going to be speaking to a a group of people that uh, might have some degree of commitment already, and yet they're not married. Perhaps we could call them betrothed. They're engaged. Um, and we'll, We'll see that in the weeks to come. Now, because of the particular teaching that Paul has given thus far, there were perhaps some in the church who, in their zeal, were kind of regretting the fact that they had gotten married. They are believers and see how the unmarried state might give them a a bit of flexibility and opportunity that now that they're married, they would not have. Maybe they were contemplating dissolving those marriage bonds so that their time and energy could be directed rather toward ministry. Perhaps as well, there were some in the church who had gotten saved and were having real problems with their unbelieving spouse. There was no peace in the home because of the strong clash of worldviews. The believer had changed completely. Old things had passed away. All things had become new. In fact, he or she was no longer the person that this unbelieving spouse had married. And so perhaps the unbelieving spouse, or perhaps both parties, were were in a very uncomfortable, unpleasant place in their marriage and relationship because of this. And so maybe there were many or some in the church who were contemplating dissolving their marriage vows simply so that they could have peace in their Christian life and not have to deal with the struggles and the difficulties that would come with being married to an unbelieving spouse. Now, this, this is the audience that Paul is speaking to today, to those who are already married, and he has some words to say. So if you are married in this room or under the sound of my voice today, these words apply to you. If you are unmarried under the sound of my voice today, may I encourage you to allow these words to root themselves in your mind so that If it were to come up in the future where you are deciding whether or not you should pursue marriage or you are helping somebody in regard to their um, situation in marriage or divorce or whatever the case may be, you will be able to make informed decisions and informed counseling opportunities through your own understanding. 
Now, within the context of Paul's commands, he takes care to mention as well that these commands are directly from Christ in verses 10 and 11. Commands which Christ himself taught while he was upon this earth and specifically gave to the apostles concerning marriage. And so there are three clear commands in verses 10 and 11 that let's look at first. Paul says, And unto the married I command, he says, Yet not I, but the Lord, that would be Jesus Christ. Let not the wife depart from her husband, but, and if she depart, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband, and let not the husband put away his wife. So there are three commands here that we see um, presented in verse 10. Paul, or Christ through Paul, says, Let not the wife depart from her husband. That's number one. Number two, in verse 11, If she depart, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her spouse. And then number three, in verse 11, Let not the husband put away his wife. This is it. This is what Jesus had to say concerning marriage. When two people are married, they shall not separate. However, most of us do recognize that there are situations in this life where separation happens. We're in a sin-sick world. If, if um, there, because of interpersonal relationships and such, there might very well be situations where uh, separation happens. As I think about this and the scope of the Christian church and Christian culture, I would call this a situational circumstance. We can't really put a blanket statement down as to when uh, divorce would or, or might happen and when it might not. Uh, we're dealing with sinful people, dealing with difficult circumstances. And so uh, situations regarding divorce are really indeed quite situational. And I, as I say this, let me highlight some very important things that we'll come back to again. I've mentioned already, and I'll mention it uh, thoroughly throughout, that we are speaking to believers here, and we're speaking in the context of believers. Just keep that in mind that we're speaking in regard to those who have accepted Christ as their Savior as we walk through this text. And the text is very clear. It's clear in the Greek. It's clear in the English. Married believers, don't leave. If you must leave, married believer, don't remarry unless it's to be reconciled to your spouse. Situations may present complications, but there would be very little controversy in the church over this issue if people were willing to read and obey their Bibles. In fact... Jesus said the exact same thing in reference to God's commands in the law concerning marriage. He said this in Matthew 19, verses 4-6. through 6, Have you not read that he which made them at the beginning made them male and female, and said, For this cause shall a man leave father and mother, and shall cleave to his wife, and they twain shall be one flesh. Wherefore they are no more twain, but one flesh. What therefore God hath joined together, let no man put asunder. That is Jesus Christ's entire teaching on the topic of whether it is right or lawful to be divorced. You say, well, pastor, isn't there in Matthew 19 an exception clause? Uh, No, but yes, we'll get to that a little bit later in the service. It's not an exception clause. However, there is a second question that Jesus Christ answers, uh, the Pharisees who are asking, and it is indeed an entirely separate question. And we'll see that a little bit later. So, uh, 
So stay with me, stay tuned, and we'll uh, get to that a little bit later in the service. So Jesus Christ has commanded, and Paul has relayed that commandment. Wife, not depart from her husband, but and if she depart, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband. Husband, do not put away the wife. That's it. But in verse 12, we see a little bit of a perspective change. Now, please note, this is not an authority change. This is a perspective change. Paul said in verse 10 that the statements he made in 10 and 11 were commandments given directly by Jesus Christ. Now, in verses 12 and following, Paul says that his statements are now his statements. He says in verse 12, but to the rest speak I, not the Lord. Something that Jesus Christ had not said during his ministry, and now Paul is going to elaborate on a particular circumstance in the church. Now, this should not mean for us that we are giving it lesser authority uh, according to the Word of God. We understand that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God, literally God-breathed, and so all Scripture is profitable. This Scripture is inspired by the Holy Spirit of God. So Paul is not saying that there's less authority here because he's speaking it. Uh, He is simply saying that that verses 10 and 11 were the command that Jesus Christ had given on this earth, and now the Holy Spirit sees fit to elaborate upon the command, not to contradict the command, not to change the command, not to um, confuse the command, but rather to help within a particular circumstance in the church to apply the command and align the circumstances in the church of Corinth with the command that Jesus Christ had given upon this earth. So, it is not going to contradict verses 10 and 11, what Paul is saying in verses 12 through 16, but rather, it is going to add more clarity to those in the church who find themselves in a situation where they might wonder if Jesus Christ's command was actually sufficient to cover the difficulty of their own situation. And here is why I believe it was that it was that the Holy Spirit felt it necessary to elaborate upon Christ's teaching on this matter of divorce and remarriage. See, the text strongly indicates that God makes a definitive distinction between marriages involving two unbelievers and marriages involving at least one believer, where it's one believer in a mixed marriage or two believers in, in a marriage. And based upon study and prayer, it seems as though there is a strong difference in the eyes of God between a marriage or a divorce of two unbelievers and a marriage and a divorce that involves at least one believer in that marriage. So while divorce is always wrong, Romans 8 tells us very clearly that nothing the unbeliever does can possibly please God because it's not done in faith, because it's not, it's, because it's being done in the flesh and they that are in the flesh cannot please God. So as we talk about the prohibitions and the nature and the consequences of divorce, We are speaking about those who are believers, not those who are unbelievers. And this is the premise that I will be teaching off of today, and I'll show you as we walk through the text why I believe this uh, case is not just, um, we we don't just assume this, but we can see this very clearly uh, throughout the text. So verses 12 and 13 give a scenario for both a man and a woman concerning what we would call a mixed marriage, where there is one spouse who's born again and, uh, and another who is not. 
And Paul's statement, with the authority of the Holy Spirit and inspiration behind it, is that the believing spouse would do their best to never depart from the unbelieving spouse. This is clear. And not only is it clear, but it fully lines up with Christ's commands that two people are not to be divorced. But it's the next verse that explains why a believer should not leave the marriage. Let's begin in verse 12, and we'll read through verse 14. But to the rest speak I not the Lord. If any brother hath a wife that believeth not, and she be pleased to dwell with him, let him not put her away. So if you have a believing man who has a woman, a wife that is an unbeliever, and if she's happy to live with you as a believer or with this man as a believer, then the believer should never seek to be separated from her. And then verse 13, it says, And the woman which hath an husband that believeth not, and if he be pleased to dwell with her, let her not leave him. So if there's an unbelieving uh, spouse, a, a man, a, a husband, and there's a believing wife, and if the unbelieving husband is more than content to live with, her, with his believing wife, then the wife should never seek to be uh, removed from that Marriage, And this is why, verse 14, For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Else were your children unclean, but now are they holy. Verse 14 tells us that the unbelieving members of a family are sanctified when there is a person in the family who is or becomes a born-again believer. Now, this brings up a, a question that we must immediately ask and answer, and that is, what does it mean that this family is sanctified? That the unbelievers in a family are sanctified. Whenever we ask a question like this, we need to begin or we need to approach it with a foundational understanding. Well, first we need to remember that the Bible never contradicts itself. Where we perceive contradiction, it is an error in our understanding, not in the Bible. Second, we need to remember that the Bible is never wrong. Where we perceive error, it's a problem with our understanding, not with the Bible. And so, we must understand what this verse cannot mean. This verse cannot mean that if one family member becomes a believer, the whole family is born again. It cannot mean that. We know it cannot mean that. This verse cannot mean that each man will not stand before God and answer for his own choices and his own sins. It cannot mean that a person can ride another person's coattails into heaven or that a person will go to hell because of the actions or responses of the others in their family. John 3:16 through 18 makes this very clear. It says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already, because he hath not believed on the name of the only begotten Son of God. There is no one in this room who will get to heaven because his father or mother or spouse is a believer. There is no one who will go to hell because his father or mother or spouse is not a believer. Every man stands before God for his own personal choice and will be judged 
based upon his own works and his own decisions and his own belief or unbelief on the day of judgment. So it cannot mean that the unbelieving wife or husband and children are saved because of the believing spouse. Now, there are some who would state this verse simply means that the blessings of a believing spouse will carry over to the whole family. That all this means is that the spouse's love and faith and submission will bless the whole family. And so the idea of sanctification is more or less that they will become a good family. However, the word sanctified here is literally to set aside or to consecrate. The strength of the wording is too heavy for it simply to mean that that the family will become a good family. It's a word that's used regarding things that are given to God. Let me take you to one of these examples of things that are given to God that will actually help us greatly seek to understand what this word sanctified means. When the Jews sanctified or consecrated something to God, it didn't inherently mean that the character of that item was changed. When you consecrate something to God or sanctify something to God, it doesn't inherently mean that the character of that thing changes. Rather, it's the purpose that changes. A lot of churches do baby dedications. We would say that that baby dedication is when you are consecrating or sanctifying that child to the Lord. Now, that doesn't change anything about the child's character. It doesn't change the fact that he's a hellbound sinner. It doesn't change the fact that he needs to be saved. It's not going to ensure that he's going to be a good kid. It's not going to ensure that he is going to be saved. What it's doing is it is lifting this child up and saying, God, this child is yours and I am giving it to to you, giving him or her to you in purpose so that we are going to purpose to raise him up as unto the Lord. In Matthew chapter 23, verse 17, Jesus asks a question. He says this, Ye fools and blind, for whether is greater, the gold or the temple that sanctifieth the gold. See, there was a problem in Jewish culture. They had been splitting hairs with the law and trying to manipulate the law in order that they could do things that they shouldn't do. And one of the things that the Pharisees had said was that you can swear by the temple, but you can't swear by the gold in the temple. And in doing so, they were trying to give uh, little uh, unlawful loopholes as to how it is you can swear without being in trouble as long as you didn't swear by the really important things like the treasures that are inside the temple, but you can swear by the temple itself. And that's where Jesus Christ said, Ye fools and blinds, for whether is greater the gold or the temple that sanctifieth the gold. Which is greater, the gold itself or the temple that is actually the reason why it's sanctified? Notice that the gold was just gold, but it was sanctified not because of what it was, but because of where it was, because of the purpose it had been given. The gold was God's because it was in the temple. If you were to walk into the temple and you were to look at the treasures in the temple of Solomon, the gold would not look any different than normal gold. If you pulled a gold coin out of your pocket and threw it into the treasure there in the temple, it would not change in appearance. It would not change in character. If you picked it up, it would be the same weight. It would be the same gold. It would be the same coin that you just threw in there. However, if you were to put that coin in there, you were giving it to God. Now it hasn't changed in character, but it has changed in purpose. It's changed in how we perceive it because of where it is and what it's meant to do. So when a spouse gets saved, particularly if it is the wife that becomes the believer, 
This does not inherently change the character of the family. That family may not become any better. That family may not become any more godly. Depending upon the temperament of her husband, the family might go along with her religion, but it's also quite possible that the husband will not care, not change the character of the family, even if the wife is a believer. In fact, he might even get worse because she's a believer. But if we carry this concept of sanctification as we think about the gold in the temple, and we carry that through into the idea of marriage, I propose we'll get a much clearer idea of what Paul is saying here. You know, when we get saved, our bodies become the temple of the Holy Ghost. All things change. By virtue of our family's connection to us, they become a part of a family that is now, in a manner of speaking, consecrated unto God. They become in intimate, they come in intimate contact with the, the Holy Spirit through you. In other words, what we would say is that when a believer enters into a marriage, whether it's one believer or two, or if a person gets saved, at that point, that family becomes set aside. It falls under the expectations of a believing family. Now, this does not mean that God expects the unbelieving members to be like believers, or to act like believers, but rather it means that God expects the believing member or members of the family to treat one another, to treat his or her family in a manner that is consistent with the biblical commands toward Christian families. Now, if this is indeed a proper interpretation, this would strongly indicate that God sees the obligations of a Christian family as different from the obligations of a non-Christian family. And this makes sense to us, does it not? The discipleship aspects of the Bible, particularly in the epistles, could not just be picked up and performed by an unbelieving family. These commands are foolishness unto them. The commands in the epistles for husbands to love their wives and for wives to submit to their husbands and for children to honor their parents and parents to train their children are Christian commands in scope and in direction. So what Paul is saying here is that when the husband or wife becomes a believer, God places the obligations of a Christian family upon that believer even though he or she is surrounded by unbelievers. So if a wife gets saved, she is immediately under the obligation to submit herself to her husband as the church submits itself to Christ. She is immediately under the obligation to train her children as best as her husband will allow through submission to serve the Lord and love the Lord and to, be, to uh, understand their expectations before God. This means that if the husband is the one that gets saved and the wife is an unbeliever, he is still immediately under biblical obligation to love his wife as Christ loves the church, even if she is not giving him any submission back. He is also under the obligation to train his children in the way that they should go to lead them into the nurture and admonition of the Lord, regardless of whether his wife is going to support him in that or not. And I believe if we see things this way, if we understand that Paul is making this distinction, solves a major inconsistency that many Christians have held in the church regarding divorced persons. The problem of people's choices prior to salvation haunting them after salvation. We'll come back to this as we apply a little bit later in our service. 
So when there's a believing spouse in the family, that family becomes set apart, sanctified in the eyes of God, so that the believer is under every biblical obligation to um, their family and in the family context. This means the believer will refuse to depart from their spouse. This means the believer will raise their kids to the best of their ability to know the Lord. But this, of course, does not always mean that the unbelieving party will be willing to remain in the marriage. And that is where verses 15 and 16 come in. Paul says, But if the unbelieving depart, let him depart. A brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God hath called us to peace. For what knowest thou, O wife, whether thou shalt save thy husband? Or what knowest thou, O man, whether thou shalt save thy wife? While it is the obligation of every believer to do everything they can to preserve their marriage, through Paul, God gives the believer, with an unbelieving spouse, divine freedom to allow the unbeliever to leave without offering up great resistance, so that the life of that believer may be one of peace rather than one of constant strife. Like other aspects of this passage, there is some controversy over what it means that the believer is not under bondage. Now, many have tried to assert this means that 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 believing spouse can remarry. If the unbeliever initiates the divorce and leaves the family, then, then the believing spouse can remarry. I absolutely disagree with that interpretation of Scripture. See, there's nothing in this text that even hints at that interpretation. There's nothing in this text that allows for remarriage. As a matter of fact, The only command that we see in this text regarding remarriage is in verse 11. And it says this, But and if she depart, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband. That's it. That's the only time we see anything about remarriage in this passage of Scripture. And it's in the command of Christ. And it is that it is forbidden. So the question is this. Would Paul, as he's writing to the Corinthian church, write, well, this is what Jesus Christ says. Don't leave, but if you leave, don't get remarried. And if you're going to, it must be to that same spouse or you have to be reconciled to your spouse. Okay, that's what Jesus Christ said. And now I'm telling you it's okay to remarry in this particular context. Does that make sense to anyone in here? Does that make sense that Paul would would say that under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that he would contradict the words of Christ in his elaboration? Or would it make a whole lot more sense that Paul's elaboration here of this particular issue of a mixed marriage is in fact aligning itself with the commands of Jesus Christ, not contradicting the commands of Jesus Christ, since the Bible does not contradict, and since Paul is not going to contradict the teachings of Jesus Christ, And since there are certainly other explanations other than that they are not under bondage to hold to the commands of Jesus Christ. So we should not assume that this is giving us any sort of pass to remarry because there's nothing in the text that would lend itself to that interpretation. Now, if that were the only possible interpretation, well, then that would be the only possible interpretation, but that's not. And if this interpretation contradicts other commands in the Word of God, and there's another interpretation, well, then we should probably consider that other interpretation as more valid. And indeed, we should. 
It is much more reasonable to keep the permission within the context of what Paul has been saying here, that there are circumstances in which the unbelieving spouse departs and that they are not under bondage or under obligation to seek or to, um, to, to seek reconciliation or to resist that divorce. His allowance should never be seen to contradict the words of Christ, but rather to align this unique circumstance with the clear teaching that Christ has already given. And we've also seen as well that this is certainly not Paul's first choice. It is not Paul's first choice that the divorce would ever happen. It is not Paul's first choice that this couple that is sanctified because there is a believing spouse should depart at all. We know from Scripture that the testimony of a believer within any relationship, but particularly within the marriage context, is very powerful. In 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, Peter writes this, Likewise, you wives, be in subjection to your own husbands, that if any obey not the word, they, may, they also may, without the word, be won by the conversation or the lifestyle of the wives, while they behold your chaste conversation coupled with fear. These two verses tell us specifically that the wife's way of living, that her submissive disposition toward her husband and her submissive lifestyle can and is able to compel a husband into obeying the Word of God and into uh, the conviction according to the Word of God without ever speaking words toward him of rebuke A woman does not have to nag her husband when he's doing something wrong. She simply has to do what's right and her husband will be rebuked. A woman does not have to verbally rebuke her husband if she submits herself to her husband and lives a submissive life according to the expectations of Ephesians chapter 5 and 1 Peter chapter 3 and according to the expectations of the Word of God, then the husband will be rebuked by the Lord. And she can trust that. And you can hear testimony after testimony after testimony of women who submitted themselves to their husbands and did what was right and the Lord honored it and indeed the husband did come around. Paul presents a very similar concept in uh, verse 16 of our passage here. What knowest thou, O wife, whether thou shalt save thy husband? What knowest thou, O man, whether thou shalt save thy wife? If you are doing what you are supposed to do in the marriage context, if you as the believer are indeed submitting or loving as Christ has called us to, there will be no way that the believer will not see the biblical example and and understand, be rebuked in their spirit by the Holy Spirit of their need for salvation, of their need to get right with God. It's impossible. It will be too clear a a testimony. And and they will do one of two things. They might live with it if if they've been uh, exposed to religion for some time. But more, more likely than not, it will be one of these two things. They will either come to want what you have and accept Christ, or they will reject what you have and they'll want to dissolve the marriage. And this is what Paul is saying here. So that's our teaching. I'd like to apply today, and we're going to apply with four statements this morning. Statement number one, if a believer is married, he may not divorce. This is very clear throughout the scriptures that God does not ever approve of divorce. Say, well, wait a minute, pastor. You forgot about that Matthew exception clause. You said that you were going to 
tell us about that exception clause that's not an exception and um, where's that going to come in? Right here, right now. You've been waiting for it. Here we go. It's really no exception clause at all. Let me introduce you or reintroduce you to that passage. We see in Matthew chapter 19, the Pharisees come and they ask Jesus Christ two questions. Two questions. Keep that in your mind. The first question is found in Matthew 19 verse 3 and Jesus Christ answers it in 4, 5, and 6. It says this, The Pharisees also came unto him, tempting him, and saying unto him, Is it lawful for a man to put away his wife for every cause? And he, that's Jesus, answered and said unto them, Have ye not read that he which made them at the beginning made them male and female, and said, For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother, and shall cleave to his wife, and they twain shall be one flesh? Wherefore they are no more twain, or two, but one flesh. What therefore God hath joined together, let not man put asunder. The first question we already mentioned in the sermon, they asked, Is it lawful to put away one's wife? Jesus answered, No. His answer was, What God hath joined together, let not man put asunder. That was it. At the end of verse 6, he is finished answering this question. Is it lawful to put away your, your wife for any reason? Jesus Christ says, No. No, it's not. What God has joined together, let no man put asunder. That's it. And then a second question comes along. And this is what most believers don't, don't re- remember or realize or, or pay attention to. There's a second question here. And the second question is found in verse 7 and answered in verses 8 and 9. And it says this, They say unto him, Why did Moses then command to give a writing of divorcement and to put her away? So their second question is, Okay, well you say that divorce is not, not allowed. It's not lawful. It's not right. Well then why did Moses in the law give, give a means by which for people to get divorced? And then Jesus answers this question. And this question is in the context of the law. Remember that. And he says this, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, suffered you to put away your wife. But from the beginning it was not so. And I say unto you, Whosoever shall put away his wife, except it be for fornication, and shall marry another, committeth adultery. And whoso marrieth her which is put away, doth commit adultery. So after Jesus had been so dogmatic in his first answer, the Jews were curious to know about the law and why the law made an exception where Jesus did not. Why did Moses allow for divorce? And Jesus' answer is this, because of the hardness of your hearts. Now, immediately, that should be a flag in the minds of people that support remarriage after divorce and support divorce. If the only exception clause we find in Scripture is preceded by because of the hardness of your hearts, that should be an indication that this is not going to be positive. This is not going to be something that is allowable. This is going to be something that, if anything, is, um, is a indication of hard-heartedness when it has to come to pass. So even those who say the exception clause is valid are still admitting that the issue is an issue of rebellion, of hard-heartedness against God's commands, that they are aligning themselves with rebellion by admitting this issue. But secondly, notice Jesus never states that under the circumstance of an unfaithful spouse, 
divorce is not wrong. He never says you can divorce under the circumstance of an unfaithful spouse. He only states that under the circumstance of an unfaithful spouse, under Jewish law, remarriage after divorce is not considered adultery. So if you want to find out what Jesus Christ had to say about divorce, read verses 3 through 6. If you want to find out about the ramifications of divorce as far as adultery is concerned, read verses 7 through 9. Divorce is still sin. Divorce is still wrong. The difference is a remarriage would not be considered to be adultery under Jewish law. And this is very significant for the Jew. Because under Jewish law, adultery was punishable by stoning. So this gave a way for the nation of Israel to maintain their Jewish testimony and still be married or remarried, which is essential to Jewish culture. And how do we know that this command should be taken, taken exclusively Jewish in nature? Well, number one, the question, the first question about divorce was answered very dogmatically. The second question is regard specifically to Moses and the law, and it's answered within the context of the law. But also, I remind you that this is found in the book of Matthew. The book of Matthew is a book that is extremely and exclusively Jewish in nature. Now, that doesn't mean you can't read it and benefit from it, but Matthew was written to the Jews. It was written to those who were under the law of Moses to help connect Jesus Christ to the prophecies of Messiah. Mark, we understand, is written to a Gentile audience. And if you were to go to the Mark passage that speaks of adultery in Mark chapter 10, verses 2 through 13, you will find the same account, but you will not find in it an exception clause. Likewise, Luke was written to a Greek man, Theophilus, in the Roman Empire. And if you were to go to the Luke account of this command, found in Luke 16, 18, you would find the same account. However, you would not find an exception clause. No exception in regard to adultery or fornication in either Mark or Luke. It's only found in Matthew. So when we put all the pieces together and we find that indeed the question about divorce was answered dogmatically, the question about um, why Moses had added it to the law was answered within the context of the law and adultery and, and the Jewish culture and the necessity for remarriage to be allowable in the case of fornication without um, the innocent spouse being stoned. And then we also understand that it's only found in the book of Matthew. It's not found in the Mark account. It's not found in the Luke account. It's not found written to any Gentile audience. We begin to understand exactly how Jewish this exception was, exactly how important it is for us to see that it's, it's not an exception for the church. It's, it's never an exception for, to divorce. And indeed, even if this were to carry over, in the very best case scenario, all it would mean is that if you do get remarried, you're still sinning against God for remarrying, but at least you're not committing adultery. That's the very best case scenario. And of course, it's all due to the hardness of one's heart. So may I encourage you not to see this as an exception clause, and may I just summarize it. 
The so-called exception clause is not permitting or excusing divorce, but is rather giving a condition upon which a divorced person could remarry under the law without falling under the Jewish definition of adultery and therefore being stoned. We know the allowance is exclusively Jewish in nature because the question pertains specifically to the Mosaic law, and while the question is never repeated in the other Gospels, or while the, the question in regard to divorce is repeated, the exception clause is never repeated to a Gentile audience. The clause has every mark of being intimately connected with the Mosaic law and every mark of being a manifestation of the hardness of their hearts not of sound doctrine. So, number one, if a believer is married, he may not divorce. Number two, if a believer does get divorced, he must remain unmarried. There are times where divorce happens. There are times where divorce happens. I mentioned already in this sermon that is somewhat situational in nature. However, this second application is even more clear than the first, that a believer must remain unmarried. Outside of the exception clause, which we just explained, there is no place in the New Testament where remarriage after divorce is presented as an option. And divorce is never presented as an option as uh, to a believing audience. If a believer must divorce for whatever reason, they never have biblical position or per- permission or blessing to remarry. Now, at this point, there might be someone under the sound of my voice that's starting to sweat a little bit. You say, okay, pastor, I see the teaching. I understand it. It's very clear from the Word of God, but I've messed up. I got divorced as a believer. Then I got remarried. What should I do now? Well, what you should not do is get divorced. Stay married. Live a life pleasing to God. God never condones sin to fix sin. God never condones doing something wrong to try to undo a wrong. And so stay married. Live a life pleasing to God. Testify of the truth from God's word. Humbly testify that you made a mistake. Tell others that you made a mistake. Teach others why it was a mistake. Be a living testimony of God's grace. and Move on with your life. We have a God that forgives You ought not be branded for it. You might have some consequences, some spiritual consequences, some things that you will not be able to do in the church and such. But God is still a God of grace. And you should live in that grace and testify of that grace to others. Third point. If an unbelieving party is in a marriage and wants to leave the believer, the believer is under no obligation to resist divorce, but still may not remarry. This is not God's ideal, but it might be needful. The text makes it very clear that the believer should operate under the assumption that this marriage is permanent. The believer should never be looking for an out or be uh, um, be seeking to depart from the unbelieving spouse. However, if the unbelieving spouse desires to depart, Paul states under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that the believer is under no obligation to resist this divorce. If the believing spouse is doing what he or she ought, loving and submitting as the Bible clearly teaches, there's probably very few situations where the unbeliever would be so unhappy that they would want to leave, particularly if, if the wife is the one that's, that's a believer and she's being submissive. And if the 
ideal for such a situation is met, then these two would end up being able to get along, and by God's grace, the unbeliever would eventually be saved. And that, that was what we saw in verse 16. Fourth and final point. This is the most unorthodox of your pastor's uh, interpretations of this passage. The one that you might not agree with me on, and, and many, I would imagine, do not. If a person has been in divorce situations completely before salvation of either spouse, so that the marriage and the divorce happened while both parties were unsaved, it seems biblically consistent to distance their former actions from their future spiritual obligations and consequences. Let me explain. The Bible reveals to us time and again that everything changes when a person gets saved. The Bible equates this transaction, in fact, in John 3, with being born a second time. When you're born, there's a pretty clean slate that you're starting out with in a manner of speaking. I'm not speaking of original sin. We know that everyone's born with original sin. But as far as being born, you don't come, you don't, a baby doesn't come out of the womb and receive a speeding ticket right away. A baby doesn't come out of the room and there's a man there with an eviction notice. A baby hasn't done anything to warrant anything physically, any physical censure in its life. Romans chapter 6 verses 3 through 6 says this, Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. Second Corinthians chapter 5, verses 14-17 through 17 says this, for the love of Christ constraineth us, because we thus judge that if one died for all, then we're all dead, and that he died for all, that they which should live, that they which live, excuse me, should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. Wherefore henceforth know we no man after the flesh, yea, though we have known Christ after the flesh, yet now henceforth know we no more, know we him no more. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. And one more, Colossians chapter 1, verses 23 and 24. Paul says, And you who were, that were sometime alienated and enemies in your minds by wicked works, yet now hath he reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight. If ye continue in the faith, grounded and settled, and be not moved away from the hope of the gospel, which ye have heard, and which was preached to every creature which is under heaven, whereof I, Paul, am made a minister. As we look at these passages of Scripture, what we see as a consistent throughout is that there was a life that we lived, and now, as believers, we are no longer that. Could you imagine if every sin that we had done before we were a believer was imposed upon us in spiritual sanctions after our salvation? Could you believe if a fornicator or a thief or an adulterer was still considered a fornicator or a thief or an, an adulterer after their salvation simply by association with their former life? 
that everything has changed, that they, that they no longer desire those acts of the flesh, that they no longer desire to steal because now they are fulfilled in Christ, that they no longer desire fornication because now Christ has fulfilled that every desire, that they no longer desire drugs or alcohol or any of those things because Christ has so filled them that they don't need those things as crutch as a crutch anymore, and yet we are still going to impose spiritual sanctions upon them because of their past decisions? We would never do that. The church cannot do that because we all have sinned and we have all done things that would require total spiritual censure. The Colossians passage tells us that because we're believers, we stand before God holy and unblameable and unreprovable in Christ. At the moment of our salvation... We became set apart unto God as one who is obligated to the law of grace as taught in the epistles. Now, why should this be any different in marriage? Why should this be any different in regard to choices as an unbeliever with a spouse? If it is true in consistency with the biblical teaching that God reckons a person's marriage as different when they get saved. When they are saved, the marriage is now sanctified, and when they were both unbelievers, the marriage is not a sanctified marriage, then it would be consistent for us to recognize that until there is a aspect of salvation that is brought into that relationship, it's all dead. It's all in the past. It's all invalid from a spiritual perspective. Thus, when a married person is saved, their family becomes set apart as one that is a unique reflection of the church's relationship to Jesus Christ as taught in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 and 33. Likewise, an unmarried person who gets saved is only under biblical obligation for the relationship that they enter into as a believer. Whether they are already a believer and they enter into the relationship, or whether they get saved in the relationship, at the moment they get saved, there is biblical obligation put upon them. That is when they are born again, and they are born into this married relationship, and so it's a part of their spiritual life now. It's a part of their spiritual obligation now. They're past decisions, everything that happened before they're saved, that's not a part of their spiritual obligation. It has nothing to do with what happened after they got saved. Now, the ramifications of such a concept upon divorced persons in the church is dramatic and biblically consistent, in my opinion. We all know that the choices we make, even before our salvation, have physical consequences that can endure after being born again. If you made choices that affected your body, if you were a heavy drinker or did drugs, those, the, the, the consequences of those choices are not necessarily going to leave the moment you got saved. You, you might have trouble mentally or you might have trouble physically because you fried your brain with drugs or because um, you hurt your liver with alcohol or whatever the case may be. Those, those problems aren't going to go away. But I submit to you that the choices we make before salvation have never in the scriptures reflected any spiritual consequences that endure after being born again. That doesn't mean the temptations go away or those sorts of things for everybody. But as far as the spiritual consequences of that which was done before being born again, we just don't see it. So if a man or a woman has been divorced prior to salvation and was saved in the midst of a subsequent marriage, the church should not hold their unbelieving choices against their Christian privileges. Now, they're certainly accountable to the church for those things which they have done within the context of their 
their born-again marriage or after salvation. But there is no biblical support for the idea that the church should censure anyone for the choices that they made prior to their salvation. So while a divorced man after salvation or a believer who has remarried following a divorce after salvation is unqualified for things such as church leadership, I submit to you that it is biblically consistent to allow those who made a marital mistake completely prior to any salvation on uh, being in, in a um, completely unbelieving marriage. It is completely consistent to allow them to still function within the church as any other believer has the freedom and authority to do so. And as I mentioned, there are many who would disagree with me on this fact, but I believe that as we have looked at the text today, there's a strong case being made that my assertions are biblically consistent. I will, however, leave it to each one of you through the Holy Spirit to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Let me close, finally, with a biblical reminder. A biblical reminder of our duty before God and to others. I've given you what I believe to be a biblical perspective on divorce today, but it's one that very few in the church hold. The majority of the church today being uh, somewhat apostate, if not totally apostate, has just completely written this issue off. They've chosen just to ignore the Bible's command altogether. The other end of the spectrum is excessively ungracious toward divorce and divorced persons to where um, they're almost seen as um, plagued for having made this choice in their past. There's so many misinterpretations and deception and ulterior motives with regard to divorce that it's very difficult for Christians to even know which way is up. You're going to come across people who have made wrong decisions because they've been told by pastors to make those decisions. You're going to come across people who have made wrong decisions with regard to divorce because the most godly person they know told them to make that decision. So while we understand that these principles are dogmatic, we must always be gracious in our application. We must always be gracious when we're dealing with people. Remember that many Christians have been misinformed and while they are still accountable for the teachings of God's word when they stand before him, we need to be patient with people. We need to show people God's truth and allow the Holy Spirit to be the one to change their understanding and their hearts. May God help us to be right in this issue and then may God use us by his grace to help others be right in this issue as well.